Well, again, if you've got prayer requests, you can turn those in after and write those down. We're going to start this lesson number five, which is a water baptism introduction in this little series on baptism. We're going to finally get a biblical introduction to the church's practice of water baptism. And for the past 2,000 years, baptism has been a defining rite of Christianity, but it's not without some disagreement and controversy. And this whole, you know, Sunday night, we're doing a Bible study series on baptism and and one of our goals is to learn just what the Bible says about baptism overall. And we found that it has to say a lot about baptism and many different forms of baptism. We've largely studied that. And tonight we want to finally get to water baptism, which of course is the main way we think of baptism, the church's practice of water baptism, and learn about that as we hit the, the tail end of the study. And that's what we're going to start doing tonight. Now, before we get there, though, there is one last little small bonus subject. There's one final secondary form of baptism we're going to cover that we didn't get a chance to, and we might call it a baptism of suffering, the baptism of suffering. And you know, look, my lesson plans didn't turn out as nice and tidy as I wanted, just various issues, right? Oh, well. But technically, this subject was included in my notes for our last lesson, just ran out of time. But thematically, what we're going to study real quick here at the beginning, baptism of suffering, it fits thematically with the baptism of fire that we learned about last week from John the Baptist, or I guess it was a couple weeks ago now. We just ran out of time. I hope these lessons don't feel too disjointed, but we're going to start off here with a little, I guess, catch-up study. There's one last secondary form of baptism mentioned in the scriptures that we'll call the baptism of suffering. So let's include it because we wanted to include all these secondary forms. And then we'll, we'll have plenty of time though, still tonight, to get this you know, solid introduction to water baptism. So that's the goal for this lesson number five. So first, we're, we're going to talk about baptism of suffering. You can turn to Mark chapter 10 if you want to follow along here. Mark chapter 10. It'll be verses... 35 through 40. Mark 10, 35. Now, the context here, Christ and his disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. The days of the cross are fast approaching. Right before, Jesus just told them what's going to happen in the city, that he's going to be crucified, killed, rejected. The disciples still don't get it. They're in disbelief and denial. The good shepherd has come to selflessly lay down his life for the sheep. Meanwhile, they're just concerned about themselves. And you're going to know this account. James and John want something in particular from Jesus. Verse 35 says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Looking for a blank check promise, which is always a little shady. Like someone comes up and says, hey, I'm going to tell you something. Just promise you won't get mad. Like, no, I don't think so. Let's hear what you have to say first. You know you're being set up. And Jesus is not falling for the trick. Verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't turn them down, but he's not making any promises. Verse 37, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Their simple request is to basically just be the supreme rulers in the kingdom of God next to Jesus. 
that Jesus, he's number one. They're fine with that, but they want to be number two and number three in the kingdom. So they're asking for the highest places of honor and prestige. It's it's a pretty audacious request, but at the same time, there's some events that just transpired that are probably in the minds of James and John. They had just witnessed a transfiguration where they had seen this little preview of Christ and his kingdom glory. Also, not too long ago, Christ promised that the 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And then James and John were part of Christ's inner circle. So I guess they probably feel entitled to this question. Still, this question comes from a failure to understand the nature of Christ's death and the kingdom, that they just don't get it. And they're really only seeking their glory and honor here. But Jesus, he's going to teach them that the cross comes before the crown and that good seats are never cheap. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They don't even know what they're asking. They're they're not capable to pay the price for the seats they're requesting. But in his answer, Jesus introduces these two concepts, the cup and the baptism. This cup, that is a common Old Testament metaphor for enduring something. could be good or bad. Here the context is pretty obvious. This is the cup of God's wrath, which the Messiah would drink to the full. In the context, Jesus made that clear that he's going to be, he just announced his coming suffering and death in Jerusalem. Why would the Messiah ever drink the cup of God's wrath? He doesn't deserve any wrath. The answer is because the Messiah was going to identify with sinners and drink the cup on their behalf. And that leads into this baptism that he mentions. Clearly, no reference to water baptism. This is a figurative baptism that Jesus is teaching. He's going to be immersed into suffering per drinking the cup of wrath. He's going to pay the ultimate price of his own life to save sinners And so Christ uses baptism here as a metaphor for the cross, the the suffering of the cross. He's not going to be sprinkled with it. He's going to be immersed into, baptized into suffering by bearing God's wrath on the cross. Again, remember the word identification. Baptism communicates identification. And here this, this baptism in a way touches back on Christ's own water baptism by John. Remember, why did Jesus get baptized by John, simply to identify with us. He came as a man to identify with man, that he might be a substitute for man, that he was, he was going to suffer and drink the cup of wrath in our place. And so this baptism then refers to the Messiah's suffering, which comes by way of identification with sinners. Only he can drink this cup and endure this baptism. Now look at verse 39 and 40, just to finish. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. James and John in their pride still, they don't get it. They think they're able to endure but they're not. They asked for kingdom glory. They ended up with the promise of suffering. And that's actually the pathway to kingdom glory. And they're just going to learn the hard way that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Notice Jesus does promise them a share in the cup and the baptism. Now, of course, we know there's a major difference between Christ's cup and baptism and, and the disciples' cup and baptism. That they would share in his sufferings, but not vicariously. Right? That they're going to be baptized in suffering too, but not as an atonement for sin. Rather, as disciples are baptized in Christ, we identify with him as our Savior. And in this dark world, that's going to spell persecution for us. And so many times Christ promised, although he was going to take their place and die for them, that they would, never, they would never know God's wrath. That doesn't mean they would never know suffering, because as they believe in him and follow him, as they are baptized, they identify with him. And that just means for the, the rest of your life, this world is going to treat you like, like they treated Christ. So you'll know a form of the cup and a form of the baptism, not God's wrath, but nonetheless a form of suffering. And Jesus is using these here metaphorically for suffering. And so be it though, this is the cost of discipleship. You can see a two-way identification here that you know, we were dead and lost as sinners. And Jesus, the Messiah, came to identify with us. He takes our sin. We in turn identify with him and his victory over sin and resurrection to new life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And our response to this should be, well, to thank God that Jesus accepted his baptism, that he didn't shrink away from the cup, but he drank it to the full, and he embraced all the suffering that was necessary to pay for our sins and to redeem us. There's one more verse where Jesus mentions this same baptism. I'll just read it for you. It's Luke 12, 49 and 50, where he said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. So that's the other time Jesus uses baptism this immersion into suffering as a metaphor for the cross. His real anguish over his impending death, not the physical side, but, but the cup and the baptism. Just the thought of being under the Father's wrath instead of his love just distressed his soul. But this was the work he came to do. This is the Father's will. And he did it. And again, we, we should thank and praise God that he did it and then rose victoriously. This is the baptism of suffering, though. He used metaphorically refer to the cross and in a measure we share in this baptism and suffering as we identify with him and we're going to find our own little bit of a immersion into suffering as his disciples. So there you have it. I think that'll suffice for this baptism of suffering. Those are the only two mentions of it. Again, I told you at the beginning of the series, we're studying what the Bible says about baptism and You just think of water baptism, but there's so much more about baptism in the New Testament. So we've begun by studying all these other forms. We've seen baptism in Christ, baptism in the Holy Spirit, baptism in fire, baptism for the dead, baptism of suffering, John the Baptist's water baptism. Now, all that's done, we've, we've done it. Now we're ready to really behold what the New Testament says about water baptism, the church's water baptism. So this is kind of like the second phase of this whole study. This is what we're kind of gearing up to, to learn more about water baptism. And it, it's, it's not hugely complex, but it may not be as simple and straightforward as you think. We're going to begin now with our time with just a survey. 
There are, there are three main views of the significance of baptism for the church. We're not going to land on a view tonight. Our goal is just let's get acquainted. Let's get familiar with what the New Testament says about baptism. Just start by just studying the Bible. Look up all the verses that mention water baptism. That, that's literally what we're going to do now. What is the record of water baptism in the New Testament? How did the early church practice it? Why did they practice it? We're just going to survey now, make some basic observations, and let this be the foundation for next week and following where we now interpret and land on what is water baptism all about? What's it supposed to do? What's it not supposed to do and and be about? Let's begin. So we're going to do some good old-fashioned Bible study, plenty of verses, a lot to follow. So hope you're quick. Matthew 28. We can begin Matthew 28 as a starting point. Verses 19 through 20, you know the great commission passage. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a simple passage, well-known, but it's a landmark passage for the church. It's taken as a great commission of Christ for all of his disciples. The main command is to make disciples of all the nations. It's modified by three participles that explain that command, going, baptizing, teaching. It assumes they've gone to the nations, they've preached the gospel, and that includes then this, this work of discipleship, as someone believes, first, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we're going to see in Acts, baptism becomes this initiatory rite in Christianity. It's the outward symbol of the beginning of the Christian life. And so we see it, it becomes this one-time act that marks the beginning of someone's discipleship. And the, the ongoing part of their discipleship that, that's the part where Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That, that's a lifelong deal right there. And that's, that's the ongoing aspect of discipleship. Now, unlike John's baptism, which was for repentance, it, this, this baptism is specifically in association with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that's very explicit. This is explicitly Trinitarian. That in Christian baptism, you are identifying with God and now the new covenant. And that includes an identification with God the Son and God the Spirit. And this, this passage, you know, as we know it and think about it for the church, you look at, so far, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. And it mentions baptism a lot, but it's, it's primarily just talking about John the Baptist's water baptism. That gets all the attention. But with, with this final verse in Matthew... And as you now really move into the book of Acts, which traces the beginning of the church, you see John the Baptist water baptism, that just fades to the background. And now it it all becomes about this this related but different form of water baptism. This is Christ's water baptism, the church's water baptism. It's an identification with Christ as Lord and really the Trinitarian God. And we'll see how this becomes really the, the dominant form of baptism in the New Testament hereafter. A few final observations, though. Don't forget verse 18 in the Great Commission, where Christ said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You realize this commission comes by Christ's authority. 
And so those who take baptism lightly, for example, those who refuse baptism, they're violating the commission of the king and his full authority. So don't take this lightly. This baptism rite, it's for all of his disciples. No exceptions are given. And so baptism, it really should not be withheld from any disciple. Everyone who professes Christ as their Lord and Savior can be baptized and should be baptized. Nothing really needs to hold them back. If, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, well, you need to be baptized. This is, we're going to find more and more. This is the rite that marks the beginning of your life in Christ. Now, more to learn. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. And we'll be in Acts for most of the rest of our time. So find yourself to Acts 2, and then you'll, you'll be good to go. Acts 2, down in verse 37. A lot of these verses will be familiar because we've seen them in our previous studies. But now we want to pay attention to what they say about water baptism. Acts 2, 37 and, and following. It's after Peter preaches the first sermon at Pentecost. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Okay, important passage, well-known, unique for several reasons. First, this marks really the, the first instances of the church's water baptism. Peter preaches the gospel. They're responding, they're believing. And then he tells them, you need to be baptized. Where did that come from? Why, why is he telling them, first order of business, get baptized? Well, like, not too long ago, Jesus just told them, right? Make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's just doing what Jesus just told them to do. And so they're beginning the Great Commission here. Now, this passage also stands out. This won't be the first time or the last time we look at it. This passage also stands out because everyone uses this passage to support their own view. I mentioned there's three main views of how we understand baptism in the church. And they all use this passage for their support. Real brief, there's the sacramental view. That's, you know, baptismal re regeneration. Baptism saves you or baptism contributes to your salvation. They use verse 38 in support. Then there's the covenantal view. When that leads to infant baptism, they use verse 39 in support. And then there's the symbolic view, aka believer's baptism, where the rite of baptism is only for those who profess faith in Jesus and they use verse 41 in support. You know, we're not getting into it. We're not going to address these issues now. We, we got to stay on track. This is merely, you know, introduction. But it's good for you to already start thinking through these issues and uh, at least get familiar with them as we get going. I'll point out some observations, though. 
primarily, you can tell how this, this new baptism that shows up on the scene, again, it's primarily all about identification with Christ. That's the big difference. These are now Jews, but they're being baptized. This is a, a big outward symbol for them saying, yeah, I may be a Jew, but now I'm identifying with Jesus and, and Jesus as Lord and Savior. Don't forget what Peter told them in his sermon right before in chapter 2. He was basically displaying to them that Jesus, you know, that, that guy you crucified, Jesus, he's actually Lord and Savior. Look at verse 36 right before. He said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's drawing a line in the sand with his preaching. Like Jesus, he's the Savior. He's the divine Messiah. And so either you accept him as your Lord and Savior or you reject. And all those who were convicted and accepted Peter's words, well, they became now disciples of Jesus. And so they were immediately baptized to show outwardly their identification with Christ and therefore this new church, these people who have done the same thing. Now, let's keep going. Acts chapter 8. Next one, Acts chapter 8. There's another passage we already studied in connection with the the Pentecostal baptism issue. For now, we're just going to make a simple point. You've got Philip preaching in Samaria that some believe. As a result, they're baptized. So look at chapter 8, verse 12. It says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. Men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, point out here. Now, the order of this passage is very clear in verse 12. First, these people believed. I know this is like very basic, but it's still worth pointing out the pattern. And we're going to see over and over again that first, someone preaches the gospel. The people respond. They believe. Then they're baptized. And and nothing happens in between. They believe. Then they're baptized. And chiefly, rather, uh, Philip was preaching Christ to them. Right? The gospel must include Christ. They believed. They were baptized. Notice also verse 12 says, men and women alike. Points that out on purpose. It's interesting, there are some who believe that baptism in the New Testament just essentially directly replaces circumcision from the Old Testament. We will definitely talk about that later. But at the very least, something has changed because circumcision was only for males. But baptism in the New Testament is for men and women alike. A woman's place in the Old Covenant came under her head, either her father or her husband, But this new covenant community, women stand on their own. The the status, the faith of their parents or their spouse is not enough. They have to have their own faith. They need to enter all by themselves. And so men and women were being baptized alike. That was new. That was radical, but that was part of the new covenant. This was to be, what's covenant of faith? And so the faith of your father or husband is not going to get you into this covenant community. That's not going to save you. Now, let's keep going in chapter 8, down in verses 26 through 40. I'm not going to read them all. But the same guy, Philip, he now meets this Ethiopian eunuch 
who's reading the scriptures doesn't understand. So Philip explains, preaches Christ from the scriptures. And this eunuch believes. Look down at verse 36 of Acts chapter 8. This is another passage. He's already preached to the, to the guy and it says, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Look, these are all mostly simple, straightforward passages, right? It's not like we're learning something so earth-shattering. But again, we're just making some observations. We're just, we're just going through Bible study, the testimony of baptism in Acts in the New Testament. So here's another guy, this eunuch. He believes, and then he's immediately baptized. This is a special passage that, that really supports the notion that nothing needs to happen after someone makes a profession of faith before they're baptized. Nothing technically has to happen. You make a profession of faith, you can get baptized. You should get baptized, right? Philip didn't say, okay, I'm glad you believe now, but you know what? You need to attend a baptism class first, or, you know, we need, let's, let's hold off a year, make sure your conversion is real. Let's see some fruit and then we'll baptize you. That's not biblical. Now, don't get me wrong. There's sometimes where wisdom might dictate we might wait on baptism for someone, like if they doubt their own profession or if they're confused about the nature of their own profession. Well, yeah, we, we might wait there, but the point is, biblically, nothing needs to happen after someone makes a, a genuine profession of faith in Christ and the gospel before they're baptized. Now, we'll, we'll definitely talk more about that later, why it is the way it is in, in America and the Christian world today, where some, if not most people, go a great distance of time or a great length of time after they, they profess and then they're baptized. Uh, it need not be that way. We'll learn more about that later. Let's continue our survey, Acts 10. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 10. 34 and following. Another passage we have studied before, so summarize a little bit. Peter now preaching to the Gentiles. He's preaching Jesus as the risen Messiah. Like note verse 43, it says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And then verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Stop there for a second. So Peter's preaching to them the gospel. Faith then enters the hearts of these Gentiles. God brings them to life and to faith. That's confirmed over in chapter 11, verse 14, where the angel told these, these Gentiles that, you know, as Peter speaks these words to you, these are the words by which they will be saved. So these people are, they're saved, they're transformed by Peter's preaching of the gospel. As a result, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in that part, we already covered a while ago. So we'll leave that there. Then Peter says to them, verse 47, he says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? 
And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So as a result of their faith and for these Gentiles, the confirming sign of the Holy Spirit, they were baptized. Look, the pattern holds. They believe they're baptized. Pattern also holds. They're they're baptized explicitly in the name of Jesus Christ. Even for Gentiles who, yeah, they may not have been Jews, but they still, they're coming out of pagan background. You, You come to Christ, you're coming to new life in more ways than one. And so for them too, you're, you're being identified now and associated with Jesus Christ. He's your Lord and Savior too. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. So they get the same baptism as the Jews and the same identification with the Messiah. Uh, and, and they enter the church just the same as well. So again, this, this pattern, it's, it's, look, it's basic, it's straightforward, but it's holding firm so far that... People hear the gospel. Someone is preaching Jesus to them. They believe, and then they're baptized. And so far, they're baptized immediately after they believe. No great length of time comes, and this pattern is going to continue. We've got a few more to go here, so let's go to Acts 16. Acts 16, we'll have a couple references here. Acts 16, 14, and 15. This is Paul now, missionary journeys. He enters Europe. To preach the gospel. He finds some ladies in Philippi. Preaches to them. Look at verse 14. This is a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God. Was listening. And the Lord opened her heart. To respond to the things spoken by Paul. So Paul's preaching the gospel to her. That the outward call. Is going on through the gospel. And this verse gives us a little window that God, in, in Lydia's heart, he sent the effectual call, the, the, the saving call into her life to bring her to life. So she responds, her heart is opened. Then, verse 15, it says, When she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. So notice Lydia believes through Paul's preaching. She's baptized. But you'll notice here, there's this first mention of her household, that she and her whole household are baptized. You see that? Verse 15. Now, nothing else is said in the verse or the context, so we really can't say much else here. There's not much else to go by. We wonder, you know, did the rest of her household come to believe as Paul preached to them too? Doesn't say. Were they still unbelieving? But they were baptized simply on Lydia's account, doesn't say. Again, today we're just asking questions. We'll answer them into weeks to come. But we're definitely going to key in on these household texts. There's a handful of them that mention a whole household being baptized. What do they mean? We will learn about it. For now, by way of survey, let's see another household text. It's still in Acts 16. Look down at verse 30. Paul is still in Philippi preaching the gospel, but he is beaten. He's imprisoned for preaching Christ in Philippi. So he's in jail. But an earthquake comes from God and it releases all the shackles of all the prisoners. But Paul doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't flee. He just sits there. He's, he's, the chains are off. The gates are open, but he just sits there. And his witness convicts the jailer who famously says to him in verse 30, 
Now, what must I do to be saved? Let's look at verse 31, Acts 16. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that, uh, that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized. He and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, first off, pattern holds. Okay, Paul preaches the gospel. Philippian jailer believes, then he is baptized. All right, that's fine. That's what we expect. This time, his whole household is baptized. So it's another household text. But notice, this passage actually sheds a little bit more light on these household baptisms. Because at least in this case, it expressly says that Paul preached to the whole household. Verse 32. He preached to the whole household. And it says, the whole household came to believe. Verse 34. They all believed. And that explains why in verse 33, the whole household is baptized along with the Philippian jailer. And this seems to fit the pattern that, look, the rite of baptism, it's meant for those who come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not enough that your parents believe or your friend believes or your spouse believes. Baptism, at least the pattern so far, is for those who believe. Those who've come to faith through the preaching of the gospel, they believe, then they're baptized. We'll see how that plays out more and more. There's actually one more household baptism passage. It's the next one. We're just going in order here. So we're almost there. Acts 18. Let's go there. Acts 18, 7 and 8. This is Paul at Corinth. It's really a passing reference to baptism while Paul ministered in Corinth. Acts 17 or Acts 18, 7 and 8 says, then he left there went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, this is kind of interesting because Paul is in Corinth. He had a lot of rejection and opposition. But verse 8, Crispus, he was the leader of the synagogue. Most of the Jews in the synagogue were rejecting Paul at this point, but the leader believes. That's kind of interesting to think about where all these Jews were turning on Paul and his message, but their their leader and his household believes. So it says in verse 8, Crispus, the leader, he believed in the Lord with all of his household. Now, it doesn't say they were baptized, though. It just says they believed. So Crispus and his whole household believed. But then it mentions also that many of the Corinthians when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So this, this passage actually doesn't really relate to household baptism, but it does mention that the household is mentioned because they all believed, which leads us to believe that that's, that's the, the case here, that when the household is mentioned, it's because they all believed. Either way, though, the, the pattern continues. These Corinthians in verse 8, they heard, they were believing, and they were then being baptized. Well, there's another reference in Acts 19, 1 through 7. We'll skip that for the sake of time. We covered that 
during our, our Pentecostal baptism study. You've got some disciples of John the Baptist. They've never heard about Jesus. So when Paul fills them in, they believe and they are baptized. It's straightforward. So they're, you know, a lot of these, I'm telling you, it's, it's simple. But we're, we're, we want to finish our survey here. Acts 22. Let's go there. This is the final reference in the book of Acts to, to water baptism. Acts 22, Paul is giving his defense where this is Paul recounting his own conversion. His own conversion testimony where he was blinded by Christ on the road to Damascus and supernaturally called to new life. I trust you recall. Acts 22, and he just says in verses 15 and 16, he says, for you will be, a, this is Paul recounting the Lord speaking to him. He says, for you will be a witness for him, or rather, um, I'm sorry, Ananias uh, testifying to him. He says, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul in his testimony was blinded and then led to uh, Ananias who filled him in on, on the gospel as Christ himself revealed himself to Paul. Ananias fills him in, calls him to believe and be baptized. And so Paul recounts his conversion story. What makes this one kind of interesting is how Ananias tells him, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And this leaves us with the question, like, what's the relationship of the forgiveness of sins and baptism? Does baptism result in a person's sins being washed away? Or does baptism signify that a person's sins have been washed away? That's a big question, right? That we need to answer. We'll do that next week, by the way. But that's, that's that sacramental view. Who Some believe that you, know, you have to be baptized to be saved. That the act of water baptism actually contributes to your salvation. We're going to need to take a, a serious look at that. And we will next time. I should mention, though, in the parallel in Acts chapter 9, where that's the the actual account of Paul's conversion. It is clear that Paul was regenerated by God first and filled with the Holy Spirit as he regained his sight, and then he was baptized. But still, we will want to study more the connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins, and we will next week. For now, I think we have just enough time. There's three more verses that speak of baptism in the New Testament. So let's, let's squeeze them in here. I think we'll do it. So we're going to leave Acts. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just a, a few books to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses uh, 12 and following. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.12. Paul is concerned about division in the Corinthian church. He says in them, verse 12, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I, have a, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul's concerned that they're dividing along these leaders. And he addresses this concern in verse 13 by showing the unity of the church, how it's derived from Christ. That you know, all these believers, they weren't baptized in the name of Paul. They were all baptized in the name of Christ. So where do they get off 
aligning themselves under these different leaders like Apollos or Peter or Paul. Like they, you weren't baptized in their name. You all were baptized in the name of Christ. But how were some of them likely regarding baptism? Look at verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. It seems that some of the Christians or or the Corinthians were treating baptism like this cultic ritual that aligned them under the teaching of whoever baptized them. So if if a person were was baptized by Peter, well he might consider himself as Peter's disciple. Like I'm with Peter and I follow everything Peter says, as if it's in opposition. They're losing sight that look these guys like Peter, Paul, Apollos. They're all just preachers of the gospel of Jesus. And it's the same gospel. Uh, They were all making disciples in the name of Jesus. And baptizing disciples in the name of Jesus. Not, Not any other name. And so look what Paul says in verse 16. He says, Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I did not know whether I baptized any other. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That's very interesting. Is Paul saying that he doesn't believe in baptism? Like Christ did not send him to baptize? What does he mean? Well, clearly not. He believes in water baptism. He just admitted to baptizing a handful of people. But he's not interested in aligning himself to people through baptism. He's not interested in in utilizing baptism as the Corinthians viewed it. And that's why he's thankful that he didn't baptize many of them there. He came to make disciples of Christ, not Paul. He doesn't regard baptism as this badge of honor. some, Some pastors fall into this trap like, look, how many people have you baptized? I baptized a couple hundred. Like it's... It's not about you. And last time I checked, you weren't baptizing them in your name because they believed in you. It's not what baptism is about. This passage is actually helpful for it cautions us from making too much of baptism. And we'll we'll come back to this passage next time. You know, does baptism save you? Uh, Paul didn't think so. He understood the power was in the gospel to save people, not not baptism, which is why he's able to say, Christ did not send me to baptize. That's not where the power is. That, that comes after the fact, but to preach the gospel. And that, that already should make pretty clear, baptism is not saving, but we'll leave more of that for next time. At the very least, though, we can say from this passage, you know, the last thing that should divide Christians is baptism. Or this is a right meant to unify Christians, that there's one baptism, one Savior, one Lord. We're all received the same baptism into him and his church. Baptism should unite us. But sadly, with the effects of the fall and, and just sin and division, Christians can be divided on baptism. And we will see that to come as well. Speaking of one baptism, that's the next reference. So two more. Ephesians 4. I'll read this for you. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, where Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Pointing out here that there's just one baptism. Most likely that is a reference to water baptism. 
which was at that place and of time really part and parcel with baptism in Christ and this one baptism, our water baptism, which we will see signifies our baptism in Christ. But Paul is listing all that these Christians have in common, and it should be the case that we have in common one baptism, that we were all initiated or brought into Christ and his church outwardly through baptism. And that that common experience and that common identification should unite us, not divide us. That we've all publicly professed Christ as Lord. We've been set apart from the world. And there's only one baptism, one Christ, uh, one church that shouldn't unite us. Lastly here, we'll just make it 1 Peter chapter 3. So you can turn there. One final passage. This is going to be a good verse to end on. It is just confusing enough to end on and leave us with enough to come back and learn about next time. And I'm, I'm not saying that sarcastically. This is a challenging verse. First Peter 3, 18 through 22. I'll let you get there. First Peter 3, 18 and following. He says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for the good, for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Like I said, it's a good verse to end on. Some have designated this as the most difficult passage to interpret in the whole Bible. And it was challenging. I preached through First Peter very early on at this church. And you know, I was go get that sermon. And it's challenging. Thankfully, we don't have to figure everything out here. We're not going to. We'll save that for another time. Our primary concern with this passage is merely its reference to baptism. But what, what troubles some is that Peter says, baptism now saves you. What does that mean? In what way does baptism save you? We're going to have to study that. I'll tell you by way of preview, don't worry too much because, look, does not Peter himself clarify what he means? He says in verse 20, look, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's not talking about water baptism when he says baptism saves you. He's not talking about taking a bath. That doesn't save you. But rather, what, what do you need? You need a new conscience. You need a new nature. That's what's going to save you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but a new heart, a new conscience. You need to be raised up. That we'll come back and see more of uh, next time. Well, that's going to do it for now. We literally just studied every single verse in the New Testament that talks about water baptism. That's it. There's no more. As you can see, most of these passages were descriptive. They're telling us what the early church did. Very few are prescriptive, giving us either a direct explanation of baptism or direction on baptism. Still, there's enough to know some key truths about baptism. Its purpose is clear. Its function is clear. Its symbolism 
is clear. Even its method and mode are clear. At least they should be. They're not so clear to all. And so, like I said, baptism shouldn't divide us, but there's division over baptism, at least what it means. And maybe it's because what the Bible says about baptism is is merely descriptive and not so prescriptive that it leaves room for differences. And certainly there are differences in how we understand and interpret the purpose and the meaning of water baptism. And so we need to sort through this further that we can really understand its purpose and its role. It is clear, but we've got some work cut out for us to to look at the views, look at why they believe what they believe about baptism, and just clarify what baptism really means, what it really signifies, what it does not. And so we'll begin doing that next time. So for now, just a survey. You can say you've seen every passage on water baptism. Now we've got to double back, though, and uh, make better sense of them that we can get it right. So we'll do that starting next time. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we, we praise you. Anytime we have a, a study in your word, it, it's always profitable and edifying that we can just see your inspired word. We take encouragement from, from what we've read tonight and just the, the pattern and the power of the gospel to save, whether it's Peter or Paul or Philip or the other apostles. We know that as they preach the good news of Jesus Christ, that the Savior has come. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead to make payment for sins. And that only those who turn from their sins and believe in him will be saved. You've placed your power in that message. It still opens eyes. And as that message goes out, you call some to life. They believe and then they are baptized. You, you've created a glorious plan for your church to call a new people to yourself. You unite them in the gospel. You unite them with Christ as their head. And you unite them by this, this practice of water baptism, which, which marks off the beginning of a Christian life. You're doing a good work, a glorious work in and through your church, Lord. And we pray it continues for our part. Help us to learn more about what this water baptism signifies. We just want to get it right. So humble us and may you bless our our future study. And for now, may we just be blessed already in what we've learned as we go from here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.